I am going to just get us right into uh, God's Word this morning. So we're a church that uh, builds um, everything we do off of the Word of God. Uh, I'd like to even start just by reading it, giving God essentially the first word uh, in this service, the first word in this uh, sermon. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, and we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, that'd be our gift to you. Feel free to take it. But we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. If you're somewhat new to the Bible, uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter in the New Testament, so the, the second half kind of of uh, the book you'd have there in your hands um, there's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and they, they kind of come after the, the initial books of the Gospels. I'll give you a moment to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. We'll read it, I'll pray, and uh, we'll get going. Alright, this is Paul writing, and he, he says this. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. I'm sure everyone is confused, so let's pray. (laughs) God, you know that For me, every day is Resurrection Day. That it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That I've been crucified with you, and your resurrection is mine by way of the new birth and union with you by faith. That every day, as far as I'm concerned, is Resurrection Day. And yet, God, we're grateful that churches all around the city, all around the country, all around the world gather on a day like today and specifically celebrate your victory over Satan, sin, death, over the real enemies that plague humanity over the real problems that oftentimes no one wants to talk about. 
what everyone is dealing with. So Jesus, we ask that this morning you would be exalted. We read in the scriptures that you are risen, that you are alive, that you are present by your spirit in the midst of your people. And so we're just asking you today, manifest yourself in our midst. Come to those who are weary. Bring them living water. Lift their their lowered head. Come to those who are lost and misguided and confused and finding themselves stuck. Be their good shepherd. Show them the way. Lead them through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side with green pasture. Sprawls out and the streams of water flow. For those who are hardened to you. Those who find Christianity to be a joke, irrelevant, backwoods, outdated fairy tale. Lord, I pray that you would break in like light through the darkness. Like life into death. Like the dawn. God, that you would dispel the midnight that we often find ourselves in. And you'd open people's eyes. We know that you alone can do these things. I pray I would just be an instrument. I pray you'd use your word. I pray you'd save, I pray you'd strengthen, I pray you'd sustain, I pray you'd encourage everyone in this room this morning. Because you are alive. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I mentioned that um, in reading that text, uh, I'm aware most people would probably come away confused at at first read, probably at second or third read. And I do need to say, before I even uh, dive into this message, um, I am not planning to tackle this text the way that if you are with me uh, week in and week out, I usually do. Usually here we're kind of taking verse by verse, you know, word by word in the scriptures and diving in. Well, here this morning, all I really wanted to do actually was kind of grab a hold of one phrase in Paul's thought here. One little phrase and linger on that, meditate on it with you. Um, if you look at the text, uh, again, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 through 10, in these verses, Paul is talking about uh, what it's like for him as a servant of God. Uh, as an apostle, as a minister, as an ambassador, as a follower of Jesus. And he's describing in certain places this kind of dichotomy of the experience, right? He says things like, man, there's, there's slander and there's praise. There's honor and there's dishonor. Uh, uh, we're treated as if we're unknown and yet we're well known to God as dying and yet behold, we live. We're punished and yet we're not killed. And then there's this phrase, At the beginning of verse 10, 
is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that's the phrase I wanted to fasten on this morning. I wanted to focus us there. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's a stunning dichotomy Paul uses to describe his life. It's full of sorrow and yet there's always joy. This joy kind of running underneath it all. Joy settled somewhere deeper than even circumstance. I take these words of Paul to to be describing his experience. And really, uh, probably what the experience would be in one way or another for any who would follow Jesus. That there will be hard times, that there will be persecution, that there will be tribulation. Through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God, Paul himself says. And yet, there will be a joy. We have access to a deep and abiding and always rejoicing sort of joy. Now, I wonder if I were to ask you, do you have that? What would you say? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Do you have that sort of joy that seems to be impervious to circumstance, that runs underneath everything, a joy that's rooted deeper than even how things are going in your life? Or does it kind of go up and down? Like, I have joy when I'm on vacation. I have joy when spring finally arrives and the sun is shining. Flowers are blooming. I have joy when there's money in the bank. I have joy when uh, my kids actually do what I ask. But flip that around. And is there sorrowful yet always rejoicing going on in my life? When circumstances press in, when hardships are here, when the fallen world makes itself known to me. Is there joy that characterizes my life? Is there something impervious, something incorruptible, something impenetrable about this joy? Or not? Now let me ask you another question, and I think I already know the answer. Do you want this? Do you want this? I mean, who who in this room, who in this city, who in this world isn't after an always rejoicing sort of joy? A joy that doesn't fade, that doesn't flicker. A joy that doesn't come in and come out, but that is there and abides. Who doesn't want that? And yet, then we're left with the question, and this is really what we're going to spend our time on this morning. If we all want it, and probably a lot of us struggle uh, with it, how in the world do we get it? Where does this kind of sorrowful yet always rejoicing joy come from? How do we walk in this reality with Paul? How do we get access to this sort of thing? Um, It seems to me, 
if you uh, if you look at kind of uh, humanity and the way we typically approach sorrow and joy and these sorts of things, we have this sort of confused relationship with it. Uh, over here, we got the sorrowful things of life, and, and, and we don't really like that piece, right? We, we know we don't like that stuff. And then over here, we got the joy stuff, and we like those things. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to kind of stuff that down, do away with this, somehow fix that, get rid of it so we can get more of this. And we don't know quite how to do it. We have all these strategies all these ways that we try to cope, all these, all these ways that we try to work ourselves from sorrow to joy, but what we find is that inevitably they never really work. All of our strategies seem to get uh, 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 kind of, uh, they reduce reality. And in that they end up distorting things and because of that, the, the joy that we do find, if, if we do get some, something at the end of, of the road, feels a bit false, feels a bit hollow, feels a bit fleeting. And we get even more confused, perhaps even have less joy at the end of it. So what I want to do this morning in an effort to help us move towards this is to first identify what I think are five of the most common strategies that you'll see out there in the world and maybe even in your own life, if you're honest. Five of the most common strategies for trying to get this joy, trying to move from sorrow to this joy that's impervious. It'll show us how it doesn't work. Let's us down. It's always a reduction and hence a distortion of reality. Always feels false. And then we'll make our way towards Easter's solution, towards God's solution in Jesus Christ. So we're going to back our way uh, into the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning. So stay with me. It may take a little while to get there, but we will. And I trust that when we do, we'll see it perhaps in uh, even brighter light. Let's look at these five uh, strategies that the world often has for moving from sorrow to joy. The uh, strategy that I'd first identify for us would be deny. Deny. Um, This is the one we see uh, where people really don't even want to talk about the hard stuff going on in their life. Everything could be falling apart. Everyone can see it, and yet if you go there, if you even mention it, that they're going to pull away, or they're going to attack, or they're going to tell you to just shut up, leave me alone, I'm fine. Human beings, we grow uncomfortable with the sorrowful things of life, with the hardships Life in a fallen world, with the, with the yuck that we see inside of us. The messed up, tangled up stuff that we're ashamed of, embarrassed about, confused by, don't know what to do with. And so one of our coping mechanisms, one of our strategies to move from sorrow to joy is to simply deny that that stuff is there. I don't see it. I'm fine. If I may... I think this is actually particularly a a problem with dudes, right? I I think guys these days probably are being raised to be more 
sensitive. But uh, at least back in the day, and even in, in my day, if you're a guy, you're not supposed to cry. You, men don't cry. They sweat. <laughs> it's a sweat in my face. Those aren't tears. Men don't have emotions. They don't express something feels wrong, something hurts. They don't, they don't get a bo- Listen, when you have a men's event, you don't make sure you bring uh, a box of tissues along like you might if they're the ladies are getting together. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's a good thing. That when you do ladies' ministry stuff, you expect they're going to be talking about hard stuff and getting real with one another. When you do a men's event, you're kind of like, what do we do? Bring steaks and beans and cigars <laughs> and a football? Because this what Guys, don't talk about the stuff that's going on in here, the stuff that hurts, the hard stuff. I'm fine. We bite the lip. We get through. I'm good. I'm, I'm happy. Ugh. Right? It reminded me of um, that beautiful song that was written for the movie Star is Born. Um, well, I'm not condoning the movie one way or another, but... Um, there's a, a line in that song, Shallow, that um, the girl in, in the, the movie is watching this man self-destruct. Alcoholism and other things. Even though he's got it all, he's just self-destructing. Unwilling to own it. Unwilling to accept it. Unwilling to talk about it. And the line in the song, she just sings this. Tell me something, boy, aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? (laughs) Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? Isn't it hard to keep acting like you're fine, to keep the denial up? Isn't it hard? Don't you wish you could just come out with it? But that's it. Bite the lip. I'm happy. But it feels false, as I've been saying. The joy we get through these sorts of strategies, in this case through denial, is inevitably a reduction or a distortion of reality. It feels false. It doesn't feel whole. It feels hollow. Something's wrong with it because we know it's not the full story. We know that there's stuff down there that we just don't want to let up and look at. So even the smile, it feels plastic and If I could say, um, I think sometimes, uh, maybe even especially, sadly, Christians can fall right in line with this sort of thing. Somewhere along the way, maybe due to certain theologies that have been promulgated or things, um, we get this idea that if we're really trusting Jesus, if we're really following, if we're really with Him and we're good, we're tight, then we won't suffer. Then we won't grieve. Then we won't have sorrow. Then everything will kind of be awesome and we'll kind of glide, float our way to heaven as if on a cloud. Like that's how the Christian life should be. And so when it gets hard, when things go wrong, when there's tribulation, we don't know what to do with it. So we could play this denial thing too. And this is where you do. You end up with these plastic Christians where you come and you you ask, how are you? And no matter what's going on in their life, they're always going to say one thing, blessed. Too blessed to be stressed, right? You heard that one? 
Maybe that's like a southern thing. I don't know. You would know. I got family in Kentucky. I get that all. Too blessed to be stressed. You're like, tell me how you're really doing. This is a fallen world and it's hard. But we say those sorts of things when really what we want to do is throw our arms around the person, put our head on their shoulders, start weeping and say, yeah, I'm I'm having a hard day. I don't see where God is in this. I know he says he works all things for good, but I, I, I don't get it right now. Here's why X, Y and Z. Can you pray for me? Will you pray with me? Now, I I dare say, you might not realize it, but that, right there, honest, open admission of where we are, is actually the pathway to joy. Even if what you're talking about is sorrowful, hard stuff. You know that? Because Jesus can't meet you in your real needs, in your real pains, in your real struggles, if we're not going to talk about it with Him or others. If we just keep stuffing it down, acting like it's not there, he's not going to work with it. So we can learn from our Savior on this point. Um, when he's in Gethsemane, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of trekking through, if you're like me, you kind of trek through the, the last days of the, the, uh, the Lord's you know, week on this earth when, as we make our way to Sunday and his resurrection. And we'll... What do you have but Thursday? You know, he's there in the garden of Gethsemane and he's contemplating what's going on, what's going to happen on Friday, what's waiting for him at the cross. And what does he say as he contemplates these things? He's going to go, I feel good. I'm the son of man. I shouldn't be struggling. What's wrong with me? No, he says, listen, guys, he talks to his brothers about it. His disciples, but he says, listen, guys, I am distressed. I am in anguish. I'm burdened even to the point of death. We need to go to the only one who can help. We need to go to my father right now. Let's pray. That's what he does. Why don't we? Strategy number one, deny. Deny the sorrow is even there and try to make our way superficially towards joy, but it doesn't work. Strategy number two, escape. Escape. Um, These are the people who would at least admit, okay, yes, I'm sad, but then they quickly go on to say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to work on it. I don't want to try to figure out what to do here. I just simply want a release. I simply want an escape route. I don't think it's necessarily going to get any better. I've tried all that. I just want momentary relief. I want an escape. Examples of this uh, strategy you know, abound, and we may think of some of the more obvious ones like drugs and alcohol or sex, you know, rock and roll, that sort of thing. Like the way that we kind of escape into this substance that can numb me for a while, even though I'm going to wake back up to reality. At least for a little while, I get this escape. I get this release. I feel better. But man, I wonder if you realize, I mean, it's not just kind of those big flagrant things. It's also... Uh, all sorts of ways we can do this. I mean, this could be what's happening when you just turn on your phone every five minutes to check Facebook. Or all of a sudden, three hours go by. Like, what was this happening? 
there. Well, there was something going on in your life and it felt good to just pull away and go in here. Or this is what can happen with work. A guy who can't stop working. He's always at the office. Lights always on. Candles always burning. Man, he's a faithful employee. Maybe so. Or maybe, maybe he's running from stuff at home. Maybe stuff at home is broken and messed up. And at least in the office, he feels successful. At least there, he feels under control. And like people recognize and appreciate what he's doing. He may not realize he's escaping into that, but that is what he's doing. You with me? You've been there. People can escape into shopping. That purchase just offers a little bit of promise. New pair of jeans, new gadget to play with, might fix my life, might be fun to mess around. Gives a momentary high, even as it drains your bank account. Or, of course, there's things like entertainment, right? We can just turn on the TV and you just kind of dissolve into the couch and you can let your stuff go and enter another's world. It's their problems, their stuff. It's kind of entertaining from a distance and it also distracts me from my own. Now, marketers know our inclination towards this escape route idea and that's why they advertise stuff the way that they do you you realize this they know that we're doing this that we long for joy and we don't like the sorrow but we don't always know the route to joy and sometimes we just like to escape and we look for stuff we're watching TV. we're looking for things to help us escape and they'll try to tap into that i, I wonder if you remember um Coca-Cola's, one of, they've had numerous slogans over the years, but one of them was open happiness, right? I'm going, do any of us really think that this little fizzy, you know, this fizzy, whatever, corn syrup drink is going to like suddenly transform my inner world and my outer world and make me happy? No, we don't. But there's something alluring about a moment. There's something alluring about, oh man, maybe just for a little while I'll feel a little better. Because it tastes good, it's fun, whatever. Or, or you may think about uh, Disneyland at this point. Now, I love Disneyland. So, I, I mean, I, it breaks my heart to even have to say that this, that this is the case. But it is. It could be an escape, right? And you remember their slogan, the happiest place on earth. And when I was a kid, I thought... That is absolutely true. And we know when we go there, we're not dealing in reality, right? We know that this is kind of a, a, a departure from real life. Mice don't talk in real life, right? Pumpkins don't become carriages that take you off into, you know, to your prince in real life. Elephants don't fly. We know that, but we cannot sometimes enter in specifically because of that. Reality is hard. My life hurts. We want to go somewhere where we can escape. But here's the thing about all of this. As with every strategy, as we'll see, it's always this sort of hollow, superficial, it, it, it never works. There's always this reduction and hence distortion of reality, of the way the world really is. And so the joy that we get at the end of this road never lasts. It, something always kind of corrupts and falls apart with it. 
You drink the Coke, let me tell you something. It may taste good going down, but this should not be a surprise for us anymore. It's not good for you, all right? It's not good for you. You can end up, you know, with a mouthful of cavities if you drink enough. You could end up with diabetes, obesity, whatever. But in the moment, it feels good. Open happiness, baby. Then reality comes back up. Same thing with Disneyland. How many times have you gone to Disneyland and you enjoy the moment? You love it while you're there. It's so fun. The kid, whatever. Some of you are like, I don't like Disneyland at all. I hate lines and I don't like those big crazy creatures. I love it. I enjoy it. Until I get home and I check out my credit card statement. (laughs) Right? And then reality rears its head. And you realize, okay, that, that's kind of just, that's not real. That is not the happiest place. If that was the happiest place on earth, the funnel cake would not have cost me $10, right? At that price, Mickey Mouse himself should be back there, you know, making the thing and Tinkerbell putting pixie dust on top or something. You know what I'm saying, though? Reality comes back in. It doesn't last. It doesn't work. So... We try to deny, we try to escape. Strategy number three, to try to move from sorrow to joy, we, we try the blame game. So here now, we, we, we're willing to own it. We're not denying that life is hard, that things are messed up, that this hurts. And we're not trying to escape it, we're willing to talk about it. But here's what we want to talk about. How you have caused it for us. How you're the problem. You're the reason why I'm unhappy. The reason why I'm dealing with this. The reason why I am struggling. The reason why my life is hard is because you're in it. And we get this sort of momentary reprieve by blaming other people for things. Because we can feel like it's not us. It's them. I get to go on my merry way. They better work that out. Now, I realize that there's a whole spectrum involved in this whole idea of blame. And sometimes one person really is more responsible uh, for pains and things than another. But a lot of times it's grayscale, right? A lot of times there's... You hurt me, sure, but I hurt you. And maybe you started it, but then I responded. Or maybe you're responding to stuff I didn't even realize I was doing. And we hurt each other. And yet what we often find is it's a lot easier. And it's a way of kind of self-preservation, a way of trying to protect our joy by uh, to blame another person. To to point the finger at them means I'm okay and you're not. It's a lot harder to, to, to lay down your arms and say, you know what, I'm sorry for my part in this. I'm sorry for the way that I, man, that was selfish, that was wrong of me. Uh, to say that seems very scary and it seems like a threat to our joy because then it's as if we're saying, we're not right and we kind of need help and then we don't know what to do with it. Because the world doesn't have an answer. What do I got to do? Read a book? Go to a counselor? I don't want to talk. No, that feels like then I've got to be just sorrowful. And I don't want sorrow. I want joy. So it's your fault. It's kind of the game that we play. And yet, 
as I've been saying, this too is a reduction and a distortion of reality. It won't hold up. We know that it's not this simple. We know that we often have things that we've done. We know that there are things, there's a part we play in the relationship crumbling, whatever it is. And what will happen is, is we will, we will play this game once and then we'll get into another relationship where we'll start going to these things and it'll just show back up again. And we'll burn bridge after bridge after bridge until finally we're alone. Because no one else is willing to be the scapegoat anymore if you won't face up to your own side of things. And so the road you went down to try to get joy ends up hollow. Ends up full of sorrow. Empty. Number four. Number four. We try to fix. We can try to deny. We try to escape. We can try to blame. Or here we can try to fix. Now these are the people that, um, you know, maybe you're like me, kind of the type A among us, right? We like the, we like the to-do lists. We like the action plans. We like the workflows. We kind of enjoy that sort of thing. So when we see the problem, we like to sink our teeth into it. Let me have it. I can do it. We're not denying it. We're not escaping it. And we're not blaming others. We're, we're, we're owning it. We're saying, I can fix it. I got this. I see the problem. Let me at it. I know how to make it right. Now, there are a number of examples that I could give um, for how we try to do this sort of thing in our own lives. But here in Silicon Valley, I think one of the more prominent examples, uh, the ways we try to fix ourselves, the things we think will put us back together and what we look to for that, uh, I think it's largely kind of maybe how we approach work, money, possessions, but our careers and things. Where we kind of think, hey, my life is lame. Things are hard. Stuff not, stuff's not going well. I'm not happy. I got a lot of this sorrow. I want that joy. I think the way to get there, the way to fix it, maybe I need a career change. Maybe I need a better job. Maybe, maybe I need a pay raise. I need more people to appreciate me, more status. If I can get the carrot on the end of that stick, I think I'll be stoked. I think all of this will change, but we get there, we eat the carrot, and it just leaves us with indigestion, right? We get the money, we get the job, we get whatever, and it doesn't change here. It's interesting, um, but I have noticed, and maybe I'm just tuning into it more because I'm aware of the cultural idols here in the city, uh, there have been a lot of articles running on this topic lately, uh, even from secular sources, um, about this idea of, of work. And how it, oftentimes as we pursue it uh, uh, kind of as a savior thing, a gospel thing, uh, it actually ends up leaving us more miserable. Um, one of the articles I uh, recently looked at uh, ran in the New York Times Magazine, and the title really says it all. Wealthy, successful, and miserable. <laughs> The upper echelon is hoarding money and privilege to a degree not seen in decades, but that doesn't make them happy at work. 
In this article, it's interesting, the guy's talking about his days in Harvard Business School, and he's saying, man, back when we were first starting, me and all my classmates, we were, we were talking with excitement and anticipation about what was waiting for us in our professional lives. We had dreams of all the big things we were going to do, and all the stuff we were going to change, all the money we were going to make, about how successful and happy we would be when we got out of here. And then in the article, he talks about how they all show back up for their 15-year reunion, and they start talking to one another about their real-life experiences, how it really went. And he was surprised to find a lot were just jaded and even dissatisfied. Man, we chased after it. We got it. But what did we really get? He writes of one classmate in particular. He earned about $1.2 million a year and hated going to the office. I feel like I'm wasting my life, he told me. When I die, is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. The money didn't do it. The status didn't do it. And again, it's because there's this reduction of reality and it's distortion of it. We act as if these external things could fix something that's much deeper, a much bigger, much more fundamental problem. Uh, When we act like we can do away with the sorrow and we can secure this impervious joy, whether by our work or getting a new relationship or reaching certain goals or whatever your plan to fix it may be, we radically underestimate the depth and extent of the problem. Do you realize that? The problem is not just somewhere out there in our circumstances. It's not something you can get your hands on and manipulate. It's not something you can throw money at and have it go away. You may not like me for saying this, but the problem ultimately is your sin. Our sin. And the wrath of God that abides on us because of it. That is humanity's biggest problem. We were created for a relationship with God. And yet we would have none of it. We want your stuff. We don't want you. Well, then as we go after his stuff, it just turns to ash in our mouth. Dust in our hands. Because it's supposed to be connected to a vital relationship with him. And when we cut him out of it in our sin, it just all falls apart. There's nothing we can do to put that piece back together. God doesn't accept your checks. He doesn't even accept your good deeds. The problem is so much deeper than we can fix. Strategy number five, therefore, I would put as accept, but really this last one isn't so much of a strategy for joy as much as it is a forfeiture of the very pursuit of it. <laughs> this is kind of the, the, the natural traje- trajectory. If you kind of follow with me along this, maybe you start off with denial, then you say, okay, I do feel a little bit, but I don't want to talk about it. Let's go escape. Uh, then you finally say, okay, maybe we should talk about it, but it's my mama's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my... 
with blind people. And then maybe you say, okay, uh, that didn't work. Let's actually try to look at this. I can fix this. Give me the right book. Give me the right plan. Give me the right counselor. We can make this happen. Then we go, I got everything. I did everything that you said, and it's still not working. I'm still not a joy, lasting joy. It still feels hollow and teetering and evasive. What's left? Well, some philosophers and intellectuals would say, finally, finally, you're being honest. Finally, you're being real. This life is meaningless. There is no God. There is no point. There is no lasting joy. We're just hurled into this chaos and then we die. At least now you're recognizing it. Accept it. Embrace it. Now, this really is the natural implication of the atheistic worldview, a world without God. A world without God, without anything on that side of me on that, or on this side of me, before me and after me, is a world without ultimate meaning. It's a world without ultimate purpose. It's a world without deep, satisfying joy. Um, I still remember... Um, in one of my seminary classes, one of my professors talking about this uh, philosopher and his kind of atheistic existential uh, philosophies. Um, uh, his name is Martin Heidegger, and uh, he's way too deep to actually quote. <laughs> uh, but I did want to summarize some of my uh, seminary professor's notes here, and I wanted you to hear this. This is what he has to say. Heidegger said that man should not be concerned with metaphysics or those things that are beyond the physical. And that um, he thought that such a thing was a pointless quest. Human beings, he said, are hurled chaotically into a world that does not have a rational beginning or an everlasting end. And back of your life is nothingness. Deep down, you are a being trending towards death. You know it. Your awareness of this causes you to be anxious and unsettled. It causes you to be afraid and withdrawn. You're in denial, acting like you aren't dying, but you know you are. Here's what you need to do. In the face of fear, death, and finitude, live authentically. When you die, it will be over, and you will slide back into the nothingness from which you sprang. Face that reality, embrace that reality, and live authentically in light of it. Look it in the eye and just accept it. It is what it is. Stop pretending that there's meaning, that there's joy to be found, that there's all these other things. There's not. You're going to die. It's going to be over. You're going to turn into dust. That's the end. Accept it. He's essentially just saying what Macbeth said near the end of Shakespeare's play by the same name, if you remember these famous lines. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what life is. Now, going numb to hope and joy and the prospect of meaning in life, going hard to that can oftentimes be 
a safety mechanism, right? It hurts to hope and then be let down. It hurts to hope again and then be let down. It hurts to hope and then be let down. And so finally we just go, how about we don't hope anymore? But even this, you guys, is a reduction and hence distortion of reality. Because we know that running alongside the brokenness of this life, and is this life broken? It is. Will you die? You will. Will you suffer? Yes. It's hard. They're right on that. But is that the only reality here? No. Running alongside the brokenness is so much beauty. And so much to truly rejoice in. And so much hope, it would seem. I mean, it seems to me that God has even, if you think about it, built, wired this idea of hope into the very cosmos. Think about our daily rhythms. Think about night to day. Now things go dark every evening. But then the sun comes back and the light turns on. It's like this rhythm of, 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 of despair and hope. Despair and, dis- and, 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 and grief and struggle and hope and light and joy. But even more than that, um, the author of Ecclesiastes says that God has not just put this sort of idea into creation. He's actually put it into us. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes says that he has put eternity into man's heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11. There's a reason why. I mean, Heidegger wants to say, hey, listen, <laughs> you're not being honest when you're hoping for meaning and you're, and you're looking for purpose and all these other things. You're not being honest about what you know is true, that you're going to die rot and end up in the ground. He says that we're just trying to hide in that. But what I would say is the reason why human beings are always looking for meaning. The reason why we're always looking for purpose. We always kind of have this sense of hoping for something that can change. Something that can help. And we keep going in that. It's not because we're being inauthentic. It's because God has put eternity into our hearts. That we have this longing for something that does truly exist. We're just not willing to go the route he says to get there. By way of repentance, owning up to stuff and receiving Him. But He's put eternity in our hearts. He's made us in His image. He's breathed His very breath into us. We have an immortal soul. That's why we're looking for meaning. That's why we feel like there's got to be more. Because there is. And so even if you decide, ah, I'm going to go with Heidegger and Macbeth on this. Forget it. Life is meaningless and pointless. Even still, you will find yourself going, this this doesn't feel right either. So, what's left? Well, if all of the world's strategies fail to take us lastingly from sorrow to joy show us how to even in the midst of sorrowful hard circumstances to also have an abiding enduring uh, impenetrable joy if all the world's strategies have failed us at that maybe it's time we look at easter's solution 
the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A couple chapters before our text, um, back in 2 Corinthians 6, if we go a couple chapters before that in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul starts to tip his hat towards what it is that actually allows or enables this sort of um, sorrowful yet always rejoicing kind of life. Remember, Remember our initial question was, I want that, how do I get that? Where does that come from? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is going to speak more plainly about where this sort of thing comes from for him and how we also can enter into it. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 14. He gives a similar sort of list to the one he gives in chapter 6, where he's talking about his ministry, his life as a Christian. He talks about the ironies, the paradoxes, the dichotomies involved in it. Only this time he makes plain what holds it all together for him. How is he able in the midst of affliction to not be crushed? How is he able in the midst of poverty to still be rich? How is he able in the midst of sorrow to still have joy? Well, let's listen up. We are afflicted, he says, in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. And here is a key, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Did you see how often the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus featured in that? How often Paul kept bringing that up. The long and short of it is that Paul, Paul is able to face hard and sorrowful circumstances with joy because he knows the one who was crucified and raised for him. He knows the one who entered into the brokenness and the sadness and the mess of this world and overcame it. In other words, he knows Jesus. In other words, he knows Easter's solution. I mean, Jesus is the one. All Paul is doing is kind of following in Jesus' footsteps by way of Jesus' spirit. Jesus is the one who was afflicted in every way, but you couldn't keep him down. Persecuted, but not distraught, not, not ultimately in it. Killed, but ultimately still alive. Poor, had nothing, and yet rich, rose to an inheritance in the heavens. Sorrowful, deeply sorrowful, a man full of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says. And yet also full of joy. He tells his disciples, and we'll look at this in just a moment, I want you to have my joy, it's going to be full. Because Paul knows Jesus, the one who enters into the brokenness, the one who enters into all this and overcomes it, Paul can also have a sorrowful yet always rejoicing sort of lifestyle. 
You can push him, but you can't keep him down. There's a resurrection in the midst of this life. As he says, I know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Our joy, it's not that um, it has nothing to do with circumstance. It just doesn't have much to do with earthly circumstance, the stuff that's immediately surrounding you. But, as I'll show you here, it's tethered to Christ. He is our circumstance. He is the one. And even if you kill me, we rise to everlasting life because of him. Now, this is precisely the sort of thing Jesus himself is talking with his disciples about on the night he was betrayed. And I want you to hear this. Speaking of his death and resurrection, he says this in John 16, verses 16 to 22. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now. What I want you to see at this point is that our joy is tethered to Jesus. Where he goes, our joy goes. Did you catch it? When you don't see me, in other words, Good Friday comes and I'm on the cross and Saturday's lingers and I'm in the grave. When you don't see me, you will have sorrow. Because your joy is tethered to me and I'm gone, you think. But then when you see me, because I will rise you will rejoice. Your joy is tethered to me. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If he has risen, incorruptible, never to die again, what does that say about your joy if it's tethered to him? It's incorruptible. It's impenetrable. It's stable. It runs underneath hardship and difficulty. And will get us through to glory. It's not tethered to earthly circumstance anymore. It's tethered to heaven's king. And he is risen triumphant over Satan, sin, and death. Ascended. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. Where he lives to make intercession for us. Forevermore. Now. This is why Jesus would say, as he goes on and and he's talking to his disciples in verse 33, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. I love it. He doesn't hide us from this reality. I mean, all his disciples are going to die a gruesome death because they're associated with him. Just like Paul's talking about, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to, it's going to hurt. Life's going to get hard. He says, in this world, you will, you will have tribulation. Say, well, and there goes my joy. No. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Your joy is tethered to me. I go down into the grave. I let the brokenness of this place have its full way with me. 
But then on the third, I rise up again. Suffering and sin defeated at the cross. You will have tribulation in this life, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what he's talking about. That's the way to an impervious joy. Only the cross of Christ can sufficiently address the sorrow we all experience and provide the joy we all long for. Uh, The joy that the world offers has to go momentarily blind to other parts of reality. You have to deny this or escape that or blame it on somebody else. And so it inevitably ends up distorting. It inevitably ends up false. It doesn't last. But joy in Jesus, and this is what I want you to hear, looks wide-eyed at the world as it really is. Broken, messed up, hard. Anybody got that stuff going on? Joy in Jesus looks wide-eyed. It doesn't blink or flinch at the mess that we personally are. Not just out there, but me. My sin, my mess, my rebellion, my selfishness. It looks at that. It doesn't flinch, doesn't deny, doesn't blame. Takes it in. And then it says, yes, I see the suffering. Yes, I see the sin. But yes, I see the death and the resurrection of my Savior. And therefore, I know that even in the midst of sorrow, even as I weep over this hard circumstance or over this sin that still plagues me, and I can't believe I did it again, I can also leap for joy. Because I know the one who's making all things new. I know the one who, even on my worst days, has paid for it in full, loves me still. You see, Easter's solution doesn't have to kind of do this end run around reality to get us to joy. It doesn't bypass, it doesn't reduce anything. It says, let's look at it. Let's bring the light in on it. Let's look at it. And let's walk through it to the other side. Jesus takes it on and he overcomes it. He doesn't bypass, reduce, downplay it. Every other strategy won't go where you know you need to deal. But Easter's solution, Jesus' death and resurrection, does. If I could just say then, this is why, as Christians, it's this crazy thing. In one sense, we actually get even more mixed up inside when we come to Jesus. Here's what you'll find. If you notice, Paul doesn't say, I was once sorrowful, but now I'm always rejoicing. He says, I'm both at the same time. And we don't, in the world, tend to get that. We think they're, 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 they're opposites. If I have sorrow, I don't have joy. So I don't want to talk sorrow, I want joy. There's this strange thing that happens when you come to Christ and you start talking with him about the way the world really is, about the way you really are. You actually become more sorrowful, more somber, more humble and broken, while at the same time becoming more joyful, more satisfied, more content, more alive. You see this? It's a wide-eyed view of reality. 
We don't have to hide because we see. When I was thinking about this, here's what I thought. This is the point, I think, of Jesus. Why his resurrection body still has the scars. Why the scars? Why in, in, in the book of Revelation, when, when John sees uh, into, into the heavenly you know, courts and, 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 and he's talking about what's going on there, he says, I saw, I saw Jesus. Uh, I, I saw him as, as, as though a lamb standing as a lamb slain, I think is what he says. I see this standing king, this regal, victorious king, but it looked like a lamb slain. Why in Jesus' resurrection body are the marks still there, the wounds still there? You want to know why? Because this is a wide-eyed reality. This is a solution that doesn't wink, that doesn't flinch, that doesn't turn from the way things really are. So when we look at Jesus, what we see is at one and the same time, my sin is so bad that the Holy One of God had to die in my place when it was put on His back. And here is one who's gone into the depths of suffering. He can relate. He knows what it feels like to be broken and have the full weight of the curse upon him. And you also see, here is the one who's victorious. Here's the one who still loves me. Here's the extent he would go to fill me with joy. So with one glance at our Savior, We are, at the same time, sorrowful, repentant, broken, (laughs) humbled, and filled with joy. You feel that? You with me? So here's what we find. All along, what we kind of thought we needed to push away from and and not deal with, or or, or we, we didn't want to talk about in full, What we find, we thought it was hindering our joy to kind of talk about sorrow in that way. What we find is that when we actually come out with it, when we actually start talking to God about it, when we actually start looking at it for real, but in the light of the cross, it doesn't hinder our joy. It actually leads us to it. So let's pray. God, I, we rejoice. We rejoice. Even in the midst of hardship, we don't have to be plastic. We don't have to be fake. We don't have to clap our hands and go, He is risen and without any tears in our eyes and act like there's, life is all, all, um, all easy for us. Lord, we know it's hard. You know it's hard. But we also know the one who's overcome. But we thank you for Easter's solution. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your death and your resurrection. We thank you that it goes places the world's strategies could never get to, has conversations with us that uh, we never thought we'd want to have, and yet we find joy in the middle of it. Because it's the way we really are, and the way the world really is. Thank you, God, for it, for loving us enough. In Jesus' name, amen.